1: And if you haven't already, take your Bibles and find your way to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. To those in the uh, fellowship hall, I'll try to do my best to not forget that you're over there. But if it feels like that for a little while, just hang in there with me. And uh, we're still all getting used to these different seating arrangements. Psalm chapter 27. Did you worry about anything last week? Maybe something concerning your job or with a relationship, maybe for a child. Or did you feel anxiety about receiving some bad news? There's a lot we might be anxious about in life. Our headlines keep reminding us of some of that. Of course, there's things that are happening in our own lives personally that add to those reasons where anxiety can really cripple us, crush us. I wonder what our strategies are to overcome anxiety. What, uh, where, where do we look to find confidence in life? Maybe that's another way to say it. If we look to popular methods of our age, we might try to silence worrisome thoughts by just putting them out of our mind, kind of trying to find this Zen place of mental peace and imagine a bright future. Or others might tell us to write down everything that's worrying you. And once it's on paper, then you can actually kind of look at what the problem is and then figure out a strategy to overcome it. Our world has lower order strategies to try to cope with anxieties. Many will turn to mind-altering substances in an effort to forget, at least for a while, the anxiety-causing circumstances in their life. Others might try to escape through endless entertainment, or we can go on with different strategies that our world kind of offers. I wonder how should a Christian respond to anxieties? This is a timeless topic and it's certainly relevant for us today. We're in this time of turmoil and uncertainty with all the COVID 19 restrictions, and then added to that, which has already been discussed this morning, all the turmoil and the unrest of city riots and protests and social upheaval happening around us. So thankfully, God's given us Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is all about living with God centered confidence so we can overcome anxiety. It's all about living with God-centered confidence so we can overcome anxiety. Now, I want to be clear when we talk about the idea of anxiety uh, or uh, these, uh, the, the sense of fear. I'm not talking about just general anxieties of life. What I'm, what I'm talking about, what Psalm 27 is talking about, are these gut-wrenching, um, paralyzing fear kinds of anxieties. Not the appropriate kind of anxieties that make you look both ways before you cross the street. That's good. Or the anxiety of washing your hands uh, you know, a little extra. That, that That's good. That's, there's an appropriate... That's not a life-diminishing anxiety. Those are actually, in some ways, life-giving anxieties. So I want to make sure we don't have our, a conscience unneedfully burdened by having any cares in the world. There are some cares that we do have that are not sinful. Paul described having care for the Christ churches. So to be clear, we're talking about, in Psalm 27, these gut-wrenching, debilitating fear-paralyzing type of anxieties. Psalm 27 teaches us about overcoming this kind of anxiety. It teaches us about finding our confidence in the Lord. And this idea of confidence in the Lord is found right there in the beginning and then at the end. So it's kind of like bookends on, on what Psalm 27 is about. He starts there and he ends there. If you look at verses 1 through 3, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And then at the end, verses 13 and 14, again these words of confidence come ringing through. Teach me your way... um, Sorry, verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage Wait for the Lord. In the middle of the psalm, he continues to write with these triumphant words in terms of confidence and stability and protection. Look at verses 5 and 6. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Do you wish you had that kind of confidence? where you could write, sing, and give shouts of joy, make melody to the Lord. How was it that David had such triumphant confidence? Uh, after reading Psalm 27, your inner cynic might respond something like this, where you say, well, I'm so glad that David had a moment in life, a little season in life where he could write something like this. Where in that moment, he was able to grab a pen and inscribe this down. I'm glad that he had that moment. Good for David. But you, in your circumstances, and the crush of the anxieties in your own life, you might be a little cynical thinking, is Psalm 27 a realistic picture of how we can live from day to day? Is Psalm 27 the norm or the exception to the norm? Can we really live with this kind of confidence? And the answer, according to Psalm 27 for God's people, is yes. And now it's my duty and delight in this sermon to prove that to you. And I pray that the Lord will help me accomplish that goal. The first truth we need to grasp as we try to look at God-centered confidence to overcome anxiety is this. Number one, confidence in the Lord does not ignore the dark realities of life. Confidence in the Lord does not ignore the dark realities of life. In other words, confidence in the Lord does not require calm and peaceful circumstances. Confidence in life isn't achieved by removing every anxious cause or circumstance, And David's triumphant words of confidence in Psalm 27 are at the same time very realistic. Look at what he says in verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes. Do you see the word when? It's as if David knows bad, scary threats are inevitable in life. They're coming. David has adversaries and foes in verse 2. He's got evildoers who are attacking him. And in, this, in these words in verse 2 about eating up my flesh, remember this is poetry. And so I think the word picture, the imagery that David has in mind here, is you ever seen one of those nature shows where the lion is chasing the antelope? I don't know which one you're cheering for in that scenario. But as the chase is going on, all it takes is that antelope to stumble or that lion to, to slap the, the, you know, the leg of the antelope and, and the antelope stumbles and then the lion can pounce on its prey. I think that's kind of the mindset that he has here with this poetic imagery of his adversaries are just waiting for him to stumble and fall. They're waiting, they're ready to devour him. And instead, it is, he has such confidence in in the Lord that God turns that right uh, upside down. It's actually his adversaries that stumble. That's, I think, what is being pictured here. That he has adversaries that are real. He has threats that are real and they are eager for his destruction. So whatever we might think about Psalm 27 and its triumphant confidence, we must realize that David isn't writing words of confidence from some unrealistic fantasy life of peace and tranquility that he's somehow achieved. He's in the middle of the dark realities of life. Look at verse 3. There's more realism here. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The word though in the beginning there, it's, it's as if, again, it's not necessarily literally happening to him while he's writing this, but it's something that he expects or likely has already experienced. This was a real threat that he faced. And in fact, David knew what it was like to have an army chase after him. Uh, and, uh, it's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 23. If you remember a little bit of uh, King Saul was the current king of Israel, and then David was anointed to be king. And in that interim time between uh, David actually becoming inaugurated as king uh, Saul was full of hatred and vengeful bitterness at David. David was a threat to Saul, and Saul took that out on him treacherously one-on-one, but then Saul escalated things and eventually uh, employed the army in chasing after after David. And there's one occasion in 1 Samuel 23 where David is on one side of the mountain, Saul's on the other side, Saul's chasing after David, and, and Saul's catching up. It says that the army was closing in on David. And in that moment, King Saul gets a messenger that says, hey, the Philistines are raiding the land. And so Saul had to break off his pursuit of David and go uh, silence the the Philistine raids on the land. And David was rescued. But in the middle of that, I guarantee you that David had gut-wrenching kind of anxiety circumstances, right? He's being chased by an army. They intend to do him harm to kill him. And so the confidence we read in Psalm 27 isn't fake. It's not like David is unrealistic in his perspective on life. David keeps piling on the realism. Look at verse 10. He says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Other translations render this similar to uh, the previous accounts of realism with the words when or if. Even if my father and mother have forsaken me. Uh, that's, That's captured in that poetic language. And what David is doing here, it's like he's calling to mind the kind of gut-wrenching anxieties that would paralyze a person, that might cause uh, the darkness in the soul of having right this unnatural abandonment of father and mother. You can only imagine how much that would tear deeply at the fabric of of your soul. Maybe some of you in here have sadly tasted that sense of abandonment from mother and father in your time of greatest need. The ones that should be there for you the most have abandoned you and the type of anxiety that that could cause. And so the aim of what I'm trying to establish here for us from Psalm 27 so we can understand it right is that confidence in the Lord does not ignore the dark realities of life. It does not require that you have no anxious circumstances in life. You need to somehow figure out a way to mentally control what's going on in the world and find this place of Zen peace that you can be untouched in your spiritual experience of, of God. No, confidence, Christian confidence occurs right in the middle of these dark realities. What's your greatest fear? I don't know if these were David's greatest fears, but certainly these are the realistic snapshots that he draws out from his life. What might you write if you were writing Psalm 27? What are your greatest gut-wrenching anxieties? Did you know that you can have confidence in the Lord even if those scenarios happened? David does. David knows this, and he writes Psalm 27. David calls God his light and salvation. David calls God his stronghold in life, verse 1. Even though these dreadful things might happen to him, he wonders aloud of whom shall I be afraid? Well, you might say, Saul and his army, David. I mean, there's, there's some folks you could be afraid of. Saul, yet David has such triumphant confidence in the Lord. How can David write like this? He doesn't ignore the dark realities. Somehow David has found the ability to find confidence in the Lord even in the face of these dark realities. How does he find it? And that's what we're going to look at next in this, really the major section of, of Psalm 27, beginning in verse 4, down through, um, maybe all the way up to verse 12. And by the way, there's other dark realities in this psalm that I, I haven't lifted out just for sake of time, uh, but you can, you can find them there on your own. Number two, where does David find his, his confidence? Confidence in the Lord flows from the preeminent enjoyment of relationship with the Lord. Now, I know that's a mouthful. I went in circles on trying to figure out better ways to say this. And if you have a more memorable way to say it, write it down. I'd be happy to hear it. But until then, confidence in the Lord, his confidence in the Lord, flows from his greatest enjoyment of the Lord. Maybe that's a better way to say it. His confidence flows from his great enjoyment of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Listen to these words. These words are teaching us where David finds his confidence. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what purpose, David? What are you going to do there? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Look at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Look again in verse 9. Hear his cry, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way. Who do you know in your life that you might be able to write words like this to? Do you have a a spouse, fiance, a, a lifelong friend, you might, I know you'd have to do some editing, right, to make it fit, but could you take kind of the flavor, the tone, the, the heartful yearning that we hear in these words? Who in your life might you be able to write words like this to? Whoever it is, it's likely someone who has been through the ups and downs of life with you in a real personal way. And So after what David's doing here, right, I just think of it this way. David writes about some of the worst case scenarios that might happen in his life. What would you expect him to write next as his prayer? What would you pray after you rehearse some of the worst case scenarios that might happen in life? These gut-wrenching sources of anxiety. What would you pray for next? Would you pray for God's protection? Would you pray for God's deliverance? Would you pray for his provision? All those are not bad things. I'm not trying to make any of us feel guilty for praying about that this last week. Those are good things, but that's not what David prays for. David asks for the enjoyment of God's presence. That's verse 4. He goes right out of these rehearsal of the realities, the dark realities of life. He's got triumph and confidence. What does he pray for? He prays for God's presence. God is the preeminent relationship of joy in his life. The idea of God as this preeminent relationship of joy is found in those phrases in verse 4. Seeking after the Lord, dwelling in the house of the Lord, inquiring in the temple of the Lord, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord... And those words about the temple and the, uh, gazing upon the beauty, we're going to look at some more of that in a bit. But this idea of the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord, it doesn't mean that life is like some big cosmic game of tag and the temple is kind of like ghoul. Remember that? Is that how you say it? Goal? How we say? It? I don't know. As a kid, you have one spot you could run. Nobody could tell you it. It's not like the tabernacle was that in life for David. As if he could get in there, you know, all the evil hordes you know, couldn't somehow get in at him because he was in the temple, it was magical. That's not it. The temple was important to David. That idea of the house of the Lord is because that's where the presence of God dwelt in his day. That's the yearning of his heart. David longs, he, he hungers for that. We saw that a little bit last week in Psalm 26 when he said he loved the dwelling place of God. So what does all this mean? How does this have anything to do with God's confidence? How does his enjoyment of God have anything to do with his confidence in life over anxieties? Well, according to Psalm 27, David finds confidence in life because God is the preeminent relationship of joy in his life. So in other words, David feels safest. He feels most confident because God is the one person, the one thing he wants most in life. It's not a desire for what God might do for him, or what God might give him, David finds confidence in life through a deep soul enjoyment of the real personal presence of God. Do you? In verse 8, David talks about his preeminent enjoyment of God with the idea of seeking God's face. And there's a whole portion of study in this idea of seeking God's face that didn't make it in the sermon today because it's a separate sermon about just the, the mystery of seeking, trying to see God's face, but nobody can, but yet some people have actually been described as seeing God face-to-face, like Moses, and I'll let you just chase that a little bit later on, okay? Come back to Psalm 27 now. Seeking God's face. In verse 8, he says, My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? David's relationship with God was not an intellectual exercise for him. It's not like he was in some sort of, you know, Cosmic, Where's Waldo? And trying to find God's face somewhere in the world. Like, oh, there he is in that cloud. Or I look at that tree and oh, I see God there. Or looking at a a thing of flowers and kind of having this moment of, I just have this closeness with God in this filth, you know, flowery field. I'm not saying you can't have worshipful moments in nature. He is seeking God's face in a personal, relational way. What do you mean? What does David mean? Well, it's been said like this. The face is the relational gate to the heart. So then it's no wonder that our closest relationships are with those we relate to face to face. If you're thinking, yeah, but you can, you can become close to someone through letters and through phone calls and notes and video calls. Sure, you can, but all of those forms of communication, even at their finest, are temporary substitutes for what your heart longs for most, which is face to face. Haven't our days of COVID-19 restrictions proven this to us again and again and again? I mean, here we are at our second week of being able to gather in person, and even yet we're still spread out, you know, to to abide by these restrictions. But at the same time, we're so glad to see our faces and look around. Our faces aren't that great. But there's something that is wonderful about this human-to-human connection of face-to-face relationship. This is what David is describing. This was true for David's relationship with God. You probably felt this effect with a spouse or a dear friend or a child who's been away, and then you get time back in their presence, and how it is so fulfilling and enriching for your heart to be with them in their presence, face to face. Some of you, some of us have lost loved ones, and our hearts hope in the eternal joy that God has promised to see those that are redeemed by His grace again, face to face. Because God is the preeminent relationship of enjoyment in his life, David finds confidence in life. He yearns for this presence of God. His confidence overcomes life's dark realities because his confidence flows from deep joy and delight that he finds in God's presence. And here again, I think, is where we as American Western Christians veer away from where David is at in Psalm 27. Because we live in a world that is seeking the pursuit of pleasure as its highest order, as its highest means. This is what makes life worth meaning, finding personal pleasure. And so we, we pursue it. Our society is telling us to pursue that at all cost. David's founded in God. So our problem then as Western American Christians is when our world, so to speak, is burning down around us in circumstance or in situation or in health or in finances or whatever else that goes on, it's like we've lost all meaning in life then. It goes, it burns down with it. And the gut-wrenching anxieties of life cripple us. And the joy of the Lord leaves us. You see, for David, an army could ruin his home and destroy his kingdom. Forces of nature or political upheaval could destroy his finances. Enemies might take his earthly life. Friends or family could betray him or abandon him. His own son did that. Could destroy his reputation and his honor. All of this could happen, but nothing, nothing could take the joy and delight that David found in God's presence. The worst realities of life in this sin-cursed world cannot destroy David's preeminent source of joy because they are anchored in God himself so then david's cry in verse 9 it is it's an echo of the prayer of blessing that god gave moses and aaron for the israelite people ages ago in numbers chapter 6 and verse 24 it reads the lord this is the the prayer that god ordered moses and aaron to bless the israelite people with these are the words of the lord the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his here's the word face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift and the Lord lift up his hear it again his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's intent all along has always been to have that personal, close relationship with his people. David's cry in verse nine is an echo of that. David isn't satisfied with a distant knowledge of God. David finds his greatest joy in a deep, intimate, personal knowledge of God. So then we find in verse in chapter twenty-seven this key for overcoming anxiety. Is that when God is the one person, the one thing we desire most in life, we can have confidence even in the midst of the worst realities of life. And this brings us to the heart of the gospel. The Christian's relationship with God is the only eternally secure reality that a Christian has. Nothing, not even death, can take that from a Christian. And that's the gospel, the story of how God brings sinners back into relationship with Himself. And again, the true gospel is a far cry. It has nothing to do with what is commonly understood as the gospel in our current age, of this prosperity gospel of you do this for you know with God and you follow God and God's guaranteed to bless you and provide for you and give you all this stuff and give you this certain quality of life. No, everyone's a sinner. We've all chosen life according to our own way. We defy God's rule in our life. We deserve to be punished for our defilement of God and His holiness but God gives himself to us in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus entered our sin-cursed world. He offered himself as the sinless substitute, taking the penalty of our sin on him so that everyone who will embrace him by faith, who will turn from their love affair with sin and embrace Jesus to be their greatest joy in life, are forgiven their sin and brought into relationship with God so that we sinners can be called children of God. This is the gospel message. This is the relationship that the, that the Christian scriptures are, are showing us from the Old Testament all the way through to the New of God's redemptive plan of bringing sinners back into relationship with Himself so that we might enjoy Him forever. Do you know God in this gospel way? David did. He writes about it in Psalm 27. It's the source of His confidence. So then to all Christians listening then today, I hope that you realize some more of the depth of what God has given you in the gospel. It's not just fire insurance from the wrath of God. It's so much more than that. It really gives you, it's very practical for everyday living in overcoming the gut-wrenching, crippling anxieties of the dark realities of our world. In Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he describes the stability and peace that's offered to Christians through their relationship with God. I'm going to read this quote. It's a little bit longer, so I'll have it there on screen for you. Death, of course, death is the destruction of everything we love most, right? The loss of everything we love most. Death and all its consequences is an enormous human problem, perhaps the human problem. To live well and freely, capable of joy and love, we must learn how to conquer the inevitable terrible fear of these irreversible losses. Why? Suffering takes away the loves, joys, and comforts that we rely on to give life meaning. How can we maintain our poise or even our peace and joy when that happens? The answer is that we can do that only if we locate our meaning in things that can't be touched by death. This is what I believe Psalm 27 is an expression of. David has located his meaning, his greatest joy and satisfaction in something that cannot be touched by an army that camps against him, the abandonment of mother and father, evil threats and adversaries that would seek to devour him and destroy him. He's located his meaning, his greatest joy in life in something that cannot be touched by death. His source of confidence is located in his relationship with God, which is why he writes about it in some of these these heartful terms. The Apostle Paul writes about it in other ways in Romans chapter 8. And for many of us, this is a very familiar passage. I hope it doesn't become so familiar it you become boring, bored of it. I hope that Psalm 27 will kind of breathe fresh life into these great words. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And then he, he gives this quote, which sometimes we just like to Overlooked because it feels a little odd. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I say Sean, those are not words of confidence. That is not the kind of confidence you you know you're looking for in life. But keep reading. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the eternal view if we as Christians are herded into an arena and killed like sheep going to the slaughter. Because of these truths, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to be very kind in this this, uh, exhortation, but I want to be truthful in it. If we read words like this and our minds say, yeah, but we still want the fire in our life just to be put out, as if that will be the greatest joy in our life, we've missed the promises of the gospel. We've cheapened what Christ has actually done. We don't understand it yet. God has done something much greater than releasing us from just the gut-wrenching anxieties of the dark realities of this life. He's gone much further than that with the eternal redemption that he's offered us through the blood of Christ. So you might say, great, I'm glad for David. I'm glad David experienced God like this. Good for him. Glad he found this secret. (laughs) Can you experience God like this? Well, the answer to that is yes. Now, let me qualify that. And I'm I'm not diminishing the riches of God for us in Psalm 27, but I just want to qualify it. I can't guarantee that Psalm 27 will be your uninterrupted emotional experience of God. I can't guarantee that. And for me to represent that would be not truthful to the scriptures. There's lots of Psalms where it sounds like the psalmist is looking for God as if God's abandoned him. We have Job who felt Job's experience was like he felt like God had abandoned him. And so these truths remain true in Psalm 27, even if your experience of them would object You might be in a position in life, even today, where it feels like God is far away and forsaken you. And here I have the audacity to say, enjoy God. And you're like, where is God? You could be in that moment right now, and I want to recognize that. But I want to encourage you to press on in pursuing your joy in God because He's worth it. And by the way, that's where this whole text is going because the very end of it, look at verse 14: Wait for the Lord. (laughs) So if that's where you're at, wait for the Lord. The Old Testament character, Job, we talked about him. I'm, I'm certain whatever our experience is on that continuum of, of how near or far God feels, that we will be better able as a church family to fulfill our mission of spreading the fame of Jesus, of displaying God's glory, the more and the deeper that God's, the, our relationship with God is a source of joy in our life. So we'll close with this. Enjoyment of God is fueled by contemplation of God. You say, How do we, how do we find this kind of joy in God? What's the secret? Enjoyment of God is fueled by contemplation of God. It's worded this way in verse 4. You see it? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. He's looking, he's seeking. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so he wants to be with the presence of God. To do what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David longed for God's presence so he could enjoy, gaze upon the beauty, and learn more, inquire in his temple about God. Contemplation, kind of a strange word. It simply means looking at something thoughtfully for a long time. You all have done that in various ways this week. Some of you have been contemplating how to fix that hole in the drywall. Some of you have been contemplating uh, whatever it is, right? You've been looking at something for a long time, trying to, trying to understand it. David is contemplating God And I believe that that is the source of his enjoyment of God. Our enjoyment of God is directly proportional to our contemplation of God. And I know this may sound very like Jonathan Edwards-like, but this is Bible. Our enjoyment of God is directly proportional to our contemplation of God. Or another word might be our meditation on God and His glories. Our, our mindfulness of God, our, here's another, our conscious awareness of God and who He is and all of His glories and perfections. So in other words, we'll never find the confidence offered to us, as David experienced in Psalm 27, if we neglect or diminish our relationship with God. And this is then, I think, where the rubber meets the roads for us. We want this confidence in life. We want God to provide it for us but often we give god the, the leftovers of our of the joy of our heart we try to fit him into the corners the fringes but that's not the way life works we must do what david did we must seek after the face of the lord we must know and enjoy god so much so that we desire one thing you could read psalm 73 where at the end it says whom have i who am i in heaven but you there is one upon earth that i desire that i desire and it's you so when you open your Bible, when you pray, what are you looking for? Right? When we think of meditating on God, contemplating, our minds as Christians immediately go to, okay, i got to read my Bible and pray. Yeah, but, but we're missing it then, okay? If we come out of this Psalm 27 with this duty of, all right, I've got to go home and read my Bible and pray, we've missed it. What are we looking for when we actually seek God? I'm going to read another quote to you from a different book. This is written by Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. If, if you're in our, in our men's bio, uh, book study on Thursday nights, we read this together recently. It reads this way. And again, this is, I'm, re, I'm quoting this in regards to understanding what it means to contemplate God, which I hope will encourage us this week to be a church family that actually pursues, that seeks the face of God to enjoy him like this, to find confidence in life. We can open our Bibles for all sorts of odd reasons. As a religious duty, an attempt to earn God's favor, or thinking that it serves as a moral self-help guide, a manual of handy tips for effective religious lives. That idea is actually one main reason so many feel discouraged in their Bible reading, hoping to find quick lessons for how they should spend today. People find instead a genealogy or a list of various sacrifices. And how could page after page of histories and descriptions of the temple, instructions to the priest, affect how I rest, work, and pray today? But when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals his father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now? But who do I learn here of Christ? What do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that Instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. This is where this quote ties in with Psalm 27 and David's words of gazing on the beauty of the Lord. And as through the pages, you get caught up in the wonder of his story, you find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. It's Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. So I realized that this, what, what the path to finding this enjoyment of God is not a quick fix. You're not gonna, It's not something that you can just microwave and have it quick. We often want quick fixes for big, deep, troubling things in our lives, don't we? But that's not the way the Christian life works. The Christian life is not about quick external fixes. The Christian life is about internal transformation. Dramatic internal transformation. The Christian life is all about us spiritually growing, according to Ephesians chapter 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our end point. And that's going to require us to be a people who enjoy God more and more. We experience God and learn of him through the Holy Scriptures. God uses his word to sanctify us, right? John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in, in your truth. Your word is truth. Yes. And God gives us confidence through offering encouragement and hope through his word. That's, that's Romans 15, chapter, verse 4. We know these, these truths in a sense, but if we could tie them into how it will fuel our enjoyment of God. So we've come now to the conclusion of the psalm, right? I hope that we have at least some eagerness to share, to, to experience more of the joy and delight that is offered to us in relationship with God. But it's going to take some time. So what are we going to do between, in that gap, right, where God seems distant and maybe not enjoyable, and your 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 soul is just in turmoil over these gut-wrenching anxieties of the dark realities of our world. What are we going to do? Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Knowing and enjoying God fuels confidence to overcome life's anxieties and fears, and it builds incrementally. It builds. But it takes time. So knowing God changes us little by little, right? One by one through the years, Our priorities are are changed and altered. And what happens is our heart beats more and more for the glories of God. Ephesians 4, to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Christ, the one who says, I've come so that you can see the glory of the Father, so that you can enjoy the love that I have with the Father, and the Father for the Son. So friends, verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Maybe that's what your heart needs most today. Maybe you feel like God is distant and far off. Maybe you feel like the joys of life are burning down around you. I want to encourage you to believe in verse 13 that God is worth waiting for. The joys that He has promised us are incomprehensible. They cannot be even adequately described by even the greatest joys of this world. That's the promises that God has given us. When we start to believe that more and more, the death of earthly joys affects us, yes. But like Paul said, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? When our greatest enjoyment in life is anchored in the Lord. I'm going to ask the music team to come as I finish with one closing illustration about this idea of waiting. In the movie, based on J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, there's a scene um, that has been adapted from the book where you've got... King Theoden, I know if these names sound strange, just think of kingly people, takes the people of Rohan into the refuge of Helm's Deep, which is this mighty mountain fortress. The evil hordes are swarming and they're preparing to attack. They are in Helm's Deep, thinking that that's going to save them, but Gandalf the wizard realizes that that is not sufficient. The Helm's Deep will not survive the attack of the evil forces. So Gandalf says he's going to go find reinforcements. He rides off on his horse and he tells Uh, Then before he rides off, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. So the battle of Helm's Deep is fierce. It goes on for days. Day five comes. They're pressed back into the keep. It looks like everything is lost. The uh, warriors of Rohan are going to go out for their final charge. It seems like a suicide mission. They ride out in this final charge for what would seem to be their last effort to try to conquer these evil forces. And in that moment, the sun crests over the eastern ridge and Gandalf is there and he appears with some of the, the Rohirrim horsemen. Reinforcements have come. They ride down this, uh, this hill. The sun crests over the ridge in the east. It blinds the forces of evil and they rout the enemy and they have victory. The people of Rohan prevail. They waited and Gandalf came through. This is such an absurd illustration. We are not the people of Rohirrim waiting for Gandalf. We are God's people waiting for our conquering king to return. It's so much better. And friends, it's not just that he is an impersonal savior. He is a very personal one who enjoys you, who invites you to enjoy him forever. And that means even now. So whether you're a child or a youth or a young adult or middle age or or nearing the end of your days, there is joy for you in the knowledge and the relationship of God through Christ. And God intends for that knowledge to give you confidence in life that can overcome even the worst darkest realities of the sin-cursed world. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray.